You are now listening to the September 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Hello, listeners. It's Jisoo from History of the Biblio, where we learn about the history of the Bible. Last time, we talked about the Bible during the time of the Protestant Reformation. Through the invention of the printing press, the Bible began being dispersed widely and being translated into many different languages. Luther's Reformation and translation of the Bible into German was a great influence on this proliferation of Bible translations. Like this, the Bible continued to spread and be translated into the many languages of Europe. The first English Bible was published in the 16th century, about 150 years after John Wycliffe translated the Old and New Testaments into English. Today, we'll look at the English Bibles of the 16th and 17th centuries that were translated in England. There's one figure that cannot be left out when talking about the history of the English Bible, and that's William Tyndale. Oxford-educated chaplain and tutor Tyndale after hearing about Luther's New Testament, was determined to translate the Bible into English. Tyndale first sought the permission of the Bishop of London, but the bishop declined. He ended up translating the New Testament in Kern, Germany. It took him around a year. And early in 1526, Tyndale's New Testament was smuggled into England, hidden within the cargo bay of a London-bound ship. It could only be smuggled in because Henry VIII who was a Catholic at that time, opposed Tyndale's Bible. As the contraband Bible began to spread among the people, the then English church that followed Henry VIII's orders bought prints in mass to burn in public. But despite such resistance, Tyndale's Bible sold more and more. Over 50,000 copies were sold within Tyndale's lifetime. After selling and distributing a second edition to the New Testament, Tyndale began translating a portion of the Old Testament. In the midst of translating the Old Testament, however, Tyndale was captured and imprisoned for 16 months. During those times, many people who sold or possessed Tyndale's Bible were burned at the stake. And in 1536, Tyndale himself was executed. After death, Tyndale's corpse was also burned at the stake. According to history, before dying, Tyndale cried out his last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Perhaps it was due to this beautiful prayer. Just like Tyndale's wish that many could read the Bible, Henry VIII allowed for the printing of Tyndale's Bible only a year after Tyndale's death. Thus, in 1537, two English Bible editions, the Coverdale Bibles and the Matthew Bibles, were published. Tyndale translated the New Testament, then was executed before completing the Old Testament translations. While Tyndale was in prison, Miles Coverdale translated the Old and New Testaments into English. This translation became the Coverdale Bible. This became the first published complete English Bible. The Coverdale Bible took from Tyndale's New Testament and the Latin and German translations of the Old Testament. The Matthew Bible, which was published the same year Coverdale Bible was published, took from Tyndale's Old and New Testament translations and filled in the incomplete portions from the Coverdale edition. Thus, both Coverdale and Matthew Bibles were based off of Tyndale's Bible. Two years after receiving the king's permission to print both the Coverdale and Matthew Bibles, the first authorized edition of the Bible in English was published. This Bible was called the Great Bible, and the reason it was called the Great Bible was because of its large size. The Great Bible took from both the Coverdale and Matthew Bibles. The Great Bible also included a dedication to the king and a picture wherein the king receives the word from God, passes it on to the people, and the people praise the king in Latin. This Bible was meant to uplift the king's authority. Henry VIII established a law requiring all churches to possess a great Bible, and consequently, Cromwell, who had sole publishing rights to the great Bible, earned a lot of money. 
After Henry VIII came Edward VI, who was a supporter of the Reformation. After Edward came Mary I. Mary, who was the daughter of Henry VIII and his first wife, was a Catholic, and her determination to revert England to Catholicism led to the persecution of Protestants. Many Protestants fled this persecution to Geneva, Switzerland. In 1560, Protestants in Geneva who felt the need for a new translation of the English Bible published the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was translated so that common people could easily understand it. Thus, the Bible was sold at a reasonable price and contained pictures and explanations regarding complex events and their locations. Also, for the first time in an English Bible, the Geneva Bible contained verse numbers on each page, as well as a glossary and index at the end. It looked, in many ways, like the modern Bibles. The Geneva Bible was made so that an individual could study and analyze a text on their own. Because this Bible also contained annotations and commentaries that adhered to Protestantism, the Bible spread even more widely. For this reason, the first Bibles that Protestants took to the New World were also Geneva Bibles. Unlike the Great Bible that belonged in churches, many people used the Geneva Bible, the more compact study version of the Bible, more frequently. Moreover, the Geneva Bible's popularity did not fade even after the publishing of the King James Version. The English government banned the printing of the Geneva Bible in 1616, but prints from Netherlands and other countries still flowed into the country. King James Bible, made in 1616, was, as its name signals, made under the authority of King James. After the death of Elizabeth I, James VI, who was King of Scotland, became the next King of England. He took the name of James I, James I pursued this new version of the Bible after John Reynolds, a Puritan, suggested a new translation. James I was a king that believed in the divine right of kings and disliked the Puritan and Geneva Bibles greatly. That such a king supported the translation of a new version of the Bible was due in part because of the very political reason of reinforcing the idea that the king of England was also the moral and spiritual leader of England. James I approved 54 scholars from Oxford and Cambridge for translating in committees and had each translated text pass a committee review before finally authorizing the versions to print. Like it is written on its cover page, the King James Bible wasn't created with the intentions of improving a bad one or making a new translation, but to, quote, make out of many good ones one principal good one, end quote. Accordingly, the King James Bible was based off of many previous English Bibles, the Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew, and Geneva. Because many of the English Bibles were based off of the Tyndale Bible, the King James Bible contained many expressions that also appeared in the Tyndale. The King James Bible evaluated as having expressed the core message of Christianity in beautiful literary style left a lasting influence on England's language and culture and has been printed continuously for the past 400 years. The King James Bible was the first English Bible to be printed in the New World and the Bible that many English missionaries took into their mission fields. Today we looked at the English Bible after the Protestant Reformation. The first translator, William Tyndale, was executed and burned on the stake for having translated the Bible into English. His Bible was also burned. But barely a year after his death, many English Bibles were being published. According to legend, Tyndale, after hearing one clergy argue that church tradition was more important than the laws of the Bible, said, If God spares my life, ere many years I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Tyndale's words reveal the passion with which Tyndale hoped even illiterate plowboys and common women would one day read and learn from the Bible. This hope spread beyond England to even the new world. Next time we'll talk about the Bible in America. We end today here. See you next time. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. We started a brand new series on sexual purity. We looked at several examples of purity, like what happens when you put bad fuel in your gasoline tank. How many times have you done that? And you notice that your car starts to spit and knock and sputter. And then what happens when you download a virus to your computer? That's not good either. So we defined purity as nothing being mixed in. It's a foreign substance. It's an enemy. It's an impurity. And we applied that definition to our spiritual and our sexual lives as well. We also looked at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, and how he raised the standard for sexual integrity. He said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his own heart. Now, most of us read that passage, and we like... Whoa, you know, we start to feel immediately condemned because we know, we just know we failed in this area of our lives at some level. And that's why we look at the tender words of of our Heavenly Father in Proverbs 5. Well, today we continue listening to those tender words from our Father, and we move to Proverbs chapter 6 and 7. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss several things. Number one, what do you treasure about life? And when you, when you find a treasure, what do you do with it? Number two, what does it really mean to live, especially after we have sinned sexually? And number three, the importance of teaching healthy sexuality. Today's lesson is titled, God is a God of a Thousand Do-Overs. Proverbs 6, chapter 6. Proverbs 6, verse 20. Look how he starts off again. He says, my son. He says, my child, my daughter. Keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. 
hear that tenderness once again? It's so important when we're talking about sexual purity. The Father is so tender with us. A commandment is instruction that comes with authority. So God is the creator of all things, including our sexuality. Many of us tend to believe that God created Adam and Eve, and then somehow when when God wasn't looking, Satan comes along and slapped the genitals on them, right? That's not what happened. God created Adam and Eve, and he said it was good. It's good. That word forsake there, forsake not your mother's teaching. It's this idea that I'm not going to throw this down. I'm not going to let it go in one ear and out the other, right? I'm not going to disregard this. I'm not going to leave it uncultivated. I got to tend to this. I got to work at it on a daily basis. Verse 21, he says, bind them around your heart and tie them around your neck. So whenever scripture repeats itself like that, it means, it means we need to pay attention there. It's this idea of securing or actually fastening with a rope. And then King Solomon goes on in Proverbs 6 to tell us committing adultery, sleeping around, young people giving yourself away. It's a really, really bad idea. But once again, you guys already knew that. Proverbs 7, verse 1, look how he starts off. My son, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Notice the the tenderness once again. Treasure up. What do you do with a treasure? You hide it. You conceal it, right? You lay it up. You store these words in your head and in your heart. And what the Father is saying here is that healthy sexuality, this is one of the most important things I can ever teach you. Verse 2, keep my commandments and live. That word live there in in the Hebrew, it means to to live and live well. It means to flourish. But see, it also means to revive. It also means to live again. It means keep my commandments and be healed. Now, for something to be healed, it means it first had to be broken, right? And I don't know about you, but to me, that's really, really good news. Because I did not keep this standard of purity that God is talking about. My life was exhibit A for over 20 years of my life as an addict. And I'm ashamed to tell you of my past. But the reality is when I look at God's word, what encourages me here is that we learn that our heavenly father in complete tenderness, in complete grace and love, he says, keep my commandments and live keep my commandments from this point forward and be healed see god is saying you know what guys i'm the god of a thousand do-overs i I will revive your life from your past i want you to live well regardless of what you've done in the past he's saying i'm going to heal you keep my commandments and live again Aren't those incredibly healing words from our Heavenly Father? That He knows the pain that sexuality has brought in our lives? And He even understands our shame. And we're going to talk more about that later in this lesson. You know, at the end of the day, we've all got the same story. And it goes something like this. I was once blind, but now I see. And the only way that we can see is because God chose by grace and through love to reveal himself to us through his word and his son, Jesus Christ. But what if you can't see right now? What if things are so messy because of the choices that you've made that you can't tell up from down? How do you respond when choices that you've made have hurt so many people? And it's just so interesting that we hurt the very people that we say that we love. Well, I know that's a painful place. 
But see, it's also a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to come to the end of your own resources, to come to the end of your own strength and your so-called wisdom. I think that's a very good place because this is where we get to learn who God really is and who you truly are as well. So if you're in this place, I want to encourage you. And even if you're not, my encouragement is for us to get down face down on the floor every single morning before you start your day and just pray for God's mercy and wisdom and grace in your life. And then, and then cling to him, cling to him with all of the, all that you've got. You hold on to Jesus with your entire being. You know, yesterday I mentioned a spiritual structure to engage in this conversation with the Lord. And I don't find it I don't find it incredibly helpful just to open up the Bible from anywhere and just start reading, although that's better than nothing. But I would encourage a structure, and I would encourage you to read a daily devotional that includes Scripture every single day. If you're looking for one that specifically deals with sexuality and how to recover from pornography, I just want to let you know I've got a 35-day audio devotional, and this specifically addresses pornography. It's called the sex spiral. It's an individual study. And what you literally do is listen to a 15 to 20 minute message. You've got my notes in front of you. You've got the workbook in front of you. You've got the spiral itself in front of you. And I will teach you God's design for sex, marriage, and the family. You'll begin to learn why you've got this propensity towards pornography and why all of your efforts to stop have failed in the past at some level. And you'll also learn that the only hope for freedom from this bondage is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's basically 13 years worth of my recovery. It includes a lot of stupid stories, stupid things that I've done so that you can relate. 13 years of my recovery wrapped up in 35 days. Let me encourage you to visit the website today at dustindaniels.org. Click on store. And you can receive a 20% discount with the promotional code PODCAST when you check out. Well, thank you for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can email me your questions at DustinDaniels.org. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20 that the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk, it's living in God's power. That power is the very name, it's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Walk worthy today as you cling to Jesus, as you worship Him, as you joyfully do what God has you doing today. I love you and I look forward to our time again tomorrow.
71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels, with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Deacons, based on 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And this morning we're going to be thinking 1 Timothy 3 about the biblical office of deacon, a word that literally meant to put oneself to trouble or to serve tables. But there's a sense in which I want to remind us all as we think about deacons that we are all called to deacon, if you'll let me use it as a verb, it's used that way sometimes, with a little d. All of us are kind of called to serve as little deacons, But in Acts 6, the apostle created an actual office of deacon with a big D, saying that it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. They chose seven men in Acts 6 to free them up to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And it seems like that is exactly the kind of thing that's happening in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul is outlining what it looks like to have leadership in the church. So 1 Timothy, if you don't know, is a letter from the Apostle Paul. It's written to Timothy, one of his young men that he had prepared for ministry. We see him so often in the New Testament, a godly young man who pastored churches. And here he seems to be in the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is serving, and he writes to him concerning church life and conduct. That's sort of the overall purpose of this letter. 1 Timothy 3, Paul outlines the church structure for them with the office of overseers, which is the same as pastors and elders. And then the second to it is deacons. He does all of this before concluding, you'll notice in 1 Timothy 3.14, where he says that if, if he is delayed in coming, if Paul doesn't make it, he says, I want to just leave you with this one important statement. I'm writing these things that you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now I say that because I believe that phrase that we're not looking at specifically in our section this morning actually frames at least the office of elders and deacons as right behavior in the house of God. In other words, God has not just kind of left us up to figuring out leadership in the church willy-nilly. He said, no, here's a healthy structure for what it looks like to live in a way that is honoring to God, behavior that is right in the household of God. See, good church behavior at least includes these two offices and that of membership. Now, maybe you're thinking this may help present and aspiring deacons. And I can understand why they would want to listen. Why would this really be important for me as either a Christian or a non-Christian? Well, just consider this. And are also such as would be required of any member of the Christian congregation. Did you catch that? Deacons really have a lot of the same character traits as elders do. We don't see differences really there. But not only that, all of those things that elders and deacons are called to do are really things that every Christian are called to. So as we think about these offices, we're really, in a sense, thinking about what it looks like to be a good Christian. So we're going to look at the role of deacon this morning, and we're also going to be learning something about what it means to be a Christian. Now, our big idea, if you take notes, a great thing to write down is this. It's that dignified deacons who serve faithfully are promised a good reputation and great assurance in Christ. Good reputation and great assurance in Christ. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, the first is this. We see that deacons must prove dignity and integrity. Deacons must prove dignity and integrity. 
So here Paul is kind of transitioning from the office of elder to that of deacon, saying, deacons, likewise. That likewise is pointing us right back up to what he's just said about elders and their character. And he says there that they should have a dignity and integrity that is like that of elders that he just spoke about. That means that there is a kind of inner and outward life that reflects the power of the gospel. Now, I like the way that Paul phrases this. He says the difference between elders and deacons is not one of kind, but of function. Do you see that? It's not like you've got this holy creature, which is an elder, and then you've got like the table servants, which it doesn't really matter how they live because they're just like cleaning stuff up, right? Not in the house of God. I think this is an important thing to take note of. Don't miss this. God cares who serves from the lowest to the highest position in his church because they are collectively imaging God. You see that? That's why it matters. You might say, why does it matter that a deacon have good character? It's because everyone that serves as the people of God are reflecting the character of God. Now, we see... This dignity, which is outward, and integrity, which is inward. We'll start with the dignity. Notice first that deacons must be dignified in outward living. See that in verses 8 and 12. Uh, Look with me real quick at verse 8, what he says. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So you'll notice here that Paul is highlighting three examples that give us a kind of picture of what dignity means to him. And these are, I think, specific examples that would have been important for anyone serving in the role of deacon. And so here's how that plays out. He says, first, they shouldn't be double-tongued. In other words, it's important that they're not saying one thing to one person and then something different to someone else and maybe even conflicting statements. Second, he says they can't be in charge of the bread and wine if they're addicted to too much wine. I think that's just common sense. Third, they shouldn't be greedy for dishonest gain, especially if you consider that they would be helping care financially for widows and orphans. So you'll remember that Judas spent a lot of time with Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And it was that rich young ruler who actually walked away from Jesus Because he loved his earthly treasures too much. Servants of Christ can't be greedy for dishonest gains. Deacons shouldn't have a reputation for being dishonest with money, but rather for building up the church as they build up treasures in heaven. Deacons, they also, we find here, I believe, sort of a a common overarching definition of what they should be is those who are trustworthy and self-giving, not self-seeking, in all of life. And you'll notice in verse 12 that that includes in their home life. So it's not just that they're one way at church and then another way at home. Notice there that deacons should be known by others literally as a, in verse 12, one woman man, just like elders. Now I need to do more research on this phrase, but I've done research in the past. What I found striking is I believe that this phrase, a one woman man, is actually more countercultural than we realize, and it might have even been more countercultural in Ephesus than it is in Phoenix. Here's what I mean. In, Re- in Greco-Roman culture, it would have been very common to speak of a woman as a one-man woman. That was expected of women. Men had kind of a double standard where that was not considered to always be as important. They weren't judged as harshly if they had relationships outside of marriage or multiple relationships. And so here what we find is, is that there is this call to a fidelity for their wives that would have been different from and greater than what the cultural expectations would have been for them. In other words, this is not just so that they fit well into the culture of Ephesus. This is an otherworldly kind of command where Christ says, your marriage pictures the gospel, and that means that one man loves one woman till death do them part. This is a countercultural calling for deacons who were serving tables. Now the same would be true here, not just for married, but for single deacons who should not have a reputation for getting around or seeking to be a ladies' man or those who are not protecting their eyes from pornography. Those kinds of expectations would have been for single deacons as well. Don't miss this. 
This standard looked more countercultural in Ephesus than it did in Phoenix. And then verse 12 adds to it, and he says they must manage their children and their own households well. But why? Well, it's because deacons should be present and engaged, not neglectful, abusive, or harsh, caring for those in their own homes. If they're going to serve in the home of God. I mean, that makes sense. That's kind of an argument from the, the lesser to the greater, right? I mean, we really shouldn't be thinking like, oh, well, I can serve well at church, but, you know, at home I can kind of let that go and maybe I need to sacrifice this for that. No, it's really an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you want to serve in the house of God with the people of God, then you need to make sure your own home and affairs are in order. That's why I think that he's calling for deacons to have a healthy home life. They should demonstrate an outward dignity in every sphere of their lives. But notice that he doesn't stop there. He says there also needs to be an internal integrity. I'm going to call it integrity, an internal dignity about the way that their hearts are working. You see this in verse 9, this integrity. Notice that Paul is saying that grasping the gospel inwardly is not an optional amenity for deacons. Verse 9 says this, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I don't know what you think about when you think about mysteries. And this idea of holding the mystery, it might sound a little bit like an invitation to kind of like grip the mist, right? Like hold a mystery, but it's mysterious, so I don't know where it is, right? Kind of like a show I used to love when I was younger. I don't know why I loved it, but Unsolved Mysteries was the show that I would watch usually at nights before I went to bed, which usually would keep me up like scared to death. And the reason was, was because they would go through these cases that had never been solved. They were still mysteries. And the show would always end without telling you who did it or how it happened exactly, which left me thinking, I wonder if that guy's still out there, maybe around here. But it never gave you the the answer to the mystery, right? It was still mysterious, as mysterious when it began as when it ended. Well, that's not what the Bible means when it speaks of mystery. See, Paul uses mystery actually to describe God's plan of redemption that he has been doing throughout history, which was hidden in the past, but has now been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus, who is the Christ. That's the gospel. It's not a secret anymore. It's not a mystery See, that's not the way that the Bible speaks of mystery. He speaks it of as something that has actually been revealed. You'll notice also in verse 16 that it tells us that the mystery of the faith is also the mystery of godliness. And that mystery of godliness is not a technique, and it's not a secret, but it's God's Son. Jesus is the mystery to godliness. The whole Bible works towards revealing This gospel, which culminates and climaxes in Christ, who is God's Son. And so here what we find is a beautiful picture of the nature of what it is that our consciences are supposed to be gripping onto. Notice here that it is this internal integrity that is coming about, but it's because they grip the gospel with a clear conscience that they have that kind of integrity in the sense that their lives match their faith. You see that clearly in verse 9. And it's not perfectly, but it's truly that they are seeking to live out what they believe. Now, you might be saying, what is this conscience that's gripping the gospel? What is that? For some of you, you might be thinking like conscience. Yeah, I know I have one of those, kind of like I know I have a spleen. I just don't think much about it until something's really wrong, right? Well, the conscience, the conscience is something that God actually has created all humans with. We all have a conscience. Now, they say that sociopaths have no conscience, but biblically speaking, it's more likely they have a conscience, but a seared conscience. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I think this is just a helpful place to kind of spend a little bit of time thinking about. I'm not trying to make any kind of moral argument for the existence of God, but have you ever wondered where that objective guilt part of you comes from, where you want something and there's almost this other thing in you that says you shouldn't want that thing. And then when you do that thing that you have no reason to think is guilty, if there is no God, why that thing makes you feel more guilty? Like, who is that thing? I think it's a conscience. You should think about that. 
But there's another thing here. Notice that Paul has already claimed his letter to Timothy comes from a good conscience. So Paul has already told Timothy, I have a good conscience, verse 1, 5, and 19. And elsewhere, you'll notice that Paul speaks more of the conscience. He says that you can have a strong conscience or a weak conscience. You'll notice even in verse four or chapter 4, verse 2, that comes right after this, he is warning that some departed from the faith for doctrines of devils, and then says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So you can have a seared conscience. Of what you believe is right and wrong. It's a consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And it's basically your moral awareness turned back on yourself. I believe this is important for deacons and every Christian to understand. See, God gives all of us a conscience, and that's that part of us that tells us what is right and wrong. Now, now hang in close. We need to be careful not to violate our consciences. But catch this. Important to note. You can have a clear conscience and be wrong. You can do the right thing and have it violate your conscience because your conscience is not God. God is God. So the fall broke our consciences just like so many other things that were broken about us emotionally, physically, and otherwise. We believe that there are things that are right that are actually wrong, and we believe that there are things that are wrong that are actually right. We need to make sure that we understand that we need a clear conscience, but our consciences need to constantly be educated and shaped by the gospel. I was trying to think about, how do you communicate this? Because this is important for deacons and every Christian. We should all strive to have a clear conscience with hearts that take an ever-tightening, white-knuckled grip of the gospel. And I got this image. I know it's mixing analogies, but it's kind of like an anaconda eating a baby goat. Have you ever seen that? Some of you are like, I just checked in and heard something about anaconda and goat. And developing a good conscience in your grip of the gospel. We grip the gospel, right? I use the Bible here, but we know what we're talking about. The gospel, tighter and tighter knowing that the only, the gospel can nourish and strengthen our whole person, including our consciences. And the more that we consume of the gospel, the more that it begins to shape us from the inside out so that our inside changes and then our actions and the shape of how we live changes. See, the gospel is a lot the same way. But the more of the gospel that we are taking in, the more that that gospel shapes our understanding of right and wrong, truth and error. And our decisions begin to take on the shape of the gospel more and more. See, we need the gospel to educate our consciences because catch this, our consciences are not sovereign God is. So the more the gospel that we have in us, notice the less legalistic we will become because we know we are justified by faith alone to the glory of God alone. And by the way, when your conscience becomes more educated, you actually start to having more mature conversations as a Christian because you're not talking about what's right and wrong. You've got that because you understand God's Word. You're actually able to start talking about what is best for others, what is best to bring about glory for God. And that is a much better conversation that Christians should be having. We will seek to keep our consciences clean by knowing God's Word better and attending Many opportunities that we have to make our consciences better. You know, one good way is to understand God's Word more so that you don't feel guilty about stuff you shouldn't. You know, that frees you up. I mean, I bet some of you right now are thinking, like, I wish I knew the Word of God more so I didn't feel guilty all the time. Spiritual Christ-like freedom leads to obedience and a happy conscience. I mean, just ask Jesus who obeyed His Father in every way, even to the point of bearing our guilt upon the cross. Catch this without feeling guilty. (laughs) It's good stuff. See, ignoring your conscience is dangerous. When we don't respond to our conscience, that's how we sear or harden our conscience so that we become less and less conscious of right and wrong. See, we can even sear our consciences when the standards are wrong. You might have the wrong standards and be searing your conscience because you're ignoring them and not listening to your conscience. The answer is not to not listen to your conscience. The answer is to educate your conscience with the gospel. I actually believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so beautiful and glorious and hopeful and life-giving that the more that we truly get a grip on the glorious grace that has been brought near to us, 
which has unleashed every spiritual blessing and heavenly places on us, even now, Ephesians 1, the less likely we are to be tempted to sear our consciences by doing what we believe is wrong in the eyes of God, not our own eyes, because we know just how good God is and His plans for us. We need to be captivated afresh in our consciences with the glory of God. So we need deacons who model God-shaped consciences as they serve the church. And verse 10 says they should be tested in this. I don't think that's, you know, like ASVAB or something like that. I think what they're saying is you need to just watch these folks serve and live a faithful life and see, is this a dignified person before you make them a deacon? And here's why deacons need to have a gospel-shaped conscience. This is what I think. They are working with people who are by nature messy. Uh, That's actually a point for every sermon that I have. And when you work with people, you need to grip the gospel that grips you so that you don't join in. Join in on what? Well, things like the complaining and the gossip or the doubt in God's goodness or evidence other examples of fleshiness. See, we want deacons that exude a confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. A trust in the elders that God has given to them. A love for God's people, us. That's the kind of deacons that that we need so that we can be a healthier and healthier church. We want deacons that exude a confidence in these things. And the more that we grip the gospel, the more that we grasp it, and the better that we are equipped to serve others. Now, don't miss this. I think that whether you're a big D or a little D deacon, God cares about who serves in his house. And we want to make sure that you understand who Jesus is. Because we care far more about who you are than what you can do for us or God. Because catch this, I don't want to surprise any of you by this. Maybe you would be surprised by this. But God doesn't actually need to be served by human hands. God is not a weak God who said, I really am having trouble holding the world up and the stars in the expanse. And I need some ant-like looking little people to help me with that. That's not our God. See, it's, we don't serve because God needs us to serve. We serve because we get to serve because of the nature of who our God is. And who we are in Christ. Please take note, Paul expects servants in the house of God to have a reputation of indignity and integrity in the way they live out the gospel amongst the body of embodied people. See, serving is both a responsibility and a benefit of membership. Now, there's a second thing that we see here that wasn't controversial enough. And that is verse 11, where we see that women or wives of deacons should have dignity as well. Women or wives of dignity of uh, deacons should have dignity as well. It is on the screen, just in case I can't say it clearly. Now, verse 11 is interesting. Uh, notice that verse 11 says this. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this verse has been translated four different ways. These women that are spoken of. Uh, one is that women are part of the deacon body. Two is that female deacons are distinguished from male deacons. Third is that female assistants, these are female assistants to deacons. Or fourth, that they are wives of deacons. Now, I think that women deacons and deacons' wives are the strongest potential realities here. Now, just so I can clarify this problem, because you might be looking at your, your Bible and you're saying, it says they're wives. Like, that's not hard, right? But if you look in the Greek, the original language, there's actually no pronoun there, there. Instead, there's really just the word for woman, which is also the word for wives. So some translators added in a there with wives to explain how they were translating that text. Whereas if you look at something like the NRSV, they will just have women or women deacons likewise, you know, or to be dignified. So as you look at that, you realize, okay, well, maybe this is a little bit more complicated. I think this Greek word for wives, which is the same as women, I think it should or could speak of female deacons. Now, we see examples of female deacons like with Phoebe in Romans 16.1. We also have a letter from Pliny where he is a non-Christian, right? Roman official. He's writing and he writes in Latin. He speaks of women ministers, which is the Latin version of like Greek for deacon. One reason is, I think that it would be strange to outline qualifications for deacons' wives and not elders' wives. I just think that would be very strange. 
And you might say, well, they're dealing with money, and so they need to be careful. And I'm like, yeah, but elders are dealing with souls, and so that's kind of important too. But just to be fair, it is interesting that the next verse does speak about male deacons again. The second point is this, that some, there is some pattern here that's the same pattern as we find in verse 8, speaking of male deacons, where it says, likewise, these women, and they need to have dignity like those male deacons do. And they give three similar descriptions of what dignity for a woman looks like. That seems similar to the position. Third, and more important, is that the duty of deacons is different than that of overseers. And I think this is most important. The responsibility of overseers is pictured differently in the Bible from deacons. And it seems that that makes a big difference. You'll notice that one description that clearly sets elders apart from deacons, and really every other Christian for that matter, is that they are, in verse 2, apt to teach. And in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.17, uh, Paul says that elders who rule well and teach well are worthy of double honor. So ruling and teaching there are connected with this idea of someone who is an overseer or a pastor or an elder. So those are wrapped up in that. And we believe that that therefore excludes women from teaching men in the local church and from serving as elders. Why? Well, because 1 Timothy 2.12, it says women are not to teach or exercise authority over men, and elders are to teach and rule well. So deacons are those who are functionally helping with the practical and administrative concerns of the church to free up pastors to teach and pray like we see in Acts 6. And so, yes, we are very happy with women telling men within deacon functions what to do to help make that ministry run well. And we believe that women can serve as deacons here. Now, because teaching and ruling are not part of the role of deacon, uh, women can serve in these roles. Now, by the way, but that said, Paul in no way, please hear this, he in no way diminishes the significance of the role of serving as a deacon in the church. It is an honorable role. He pictures this as a high calling with high requirements. Now, what that means is, is that women and men can serve as deacons and they can receive the same promises. Same promises that might be also given to elders. Notice third, faithful deacons are promised a good standing and great confidence. This is the promise. This is the, the benefit of serving as a deacon that Paul gives in verse 13. So notice in verse 13, you can look there with me, that here the role of deacon not only comes with responsibilities, but it comes with, with promises. And these are pretty big promises. Uh, notice in verse 13, he says this. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacons who serve well gain two things. They gain, first, notice standing, and, and second, they gain a great confidence, a good standing and a great confidence. Now, you might be reading this and thinking to yourself, what does this mean? What kind of standing and what kind of confidence? And are these things before God or before men? Those are great questions. Uh, in his commentary, George Knight is speaking of this question, who the good standing and great confidence are before, but who they are in. And he writes this, he says, the encouragement given to deacons who serve faithfully is a good standing or progress and confidence or a boldness in the sphere of faith in Christ in which they already stand. In other words, there's not like a, they're stepping up to a new level of what it means to be a Christian. Doesn't mean that in some ways this is some kind of unique benefit that comes to deacons that is not available to every other Christian. The first promise here, both of these are in the sphere of faith in Christ. This first promise of a good standing actually speaks of an observable maturing in the faith. Since word for standing is actually a word that can mean steps. So in some context, it means kind of a, a maturity in the faith. In other context, it can mean like an advanced rank in an army. And I think what the picture here is, is that there is a kind of maturity that comes especially to deacons who are serving in these roles. As they serve, God is doing a unique kind of maturing in their lives as they are selflessly giving themselves to others. God is doing a special, unique work in them. They have taken on more of a role and more of a responsibility, and God is doing a unique work in them. I believe that's a, a huge encouragement. 
And I believe that that maturity is something that is both outward in the sense that people see it, the maturity, right? But it's also inward in the sense that God really is changing and transforming them. I think that's the first promise that comes. The second promise speaks of assurance of salvation at least. Now, we don't want to get into all of what this might mean, but it's at least, most clearly, assurance of salvation. Anybody here would be grateful? Just question, show of hands, for more assurance of their salvation. Anybody? We've got two. Okay, three. Okay, we need to work on that. Either y'all are super confident in ways that maybe you shouldn't be, you should be, or maybe you're just asleep. So let's, let's come on in close. Assurance of salvation, very good thing. We all want more of it. And here what we find is, is that that is a promise that is given to these deacons. Now, this points to a greater inner sense of confidence. An inner sense of confidence in and experience of the benefits of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, as you listen to this, you might be hearing a very faint echo of verses 8 and 9, where you have that outer dignity and that inner integrity that God is working in you. That's beginning with what you were called to do. They they notice integrity and and dignity in you, but then it's also something that God continues to do in, in a more significant way as a deacon. Don't miss this. Serving Christ and his people grows a confident faith. If you want confidence in your faith, you need to serve the people of God. That is one of of a number of great ways to grow in your confidence of faith. But there's another thing. Neglecting serving Christ and his people leads to doubt. So this morning, if you are doubting, it could be because you are neglecting. If you're neglecting the people of God, it could be that your soul is sort of wandering from Christ and his church and your confidence in all that Christ is. So if you want to bolster that up, serve others in the context of the local church. Closing up, whether you are deking out with a big D or a little d, you look so much like Christ who Paul says in Philippians 2, that glorious hymn describing Christ. Paul says this, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what cruciform, Christ-like, love looks like a servant and the new testament calls us to love one another in our local church in this kind of way so i'm just curious this morning as you're evaluating yourself how cruciform and christ-like does your serving others look will you be inconvenienced and put out to look like jesus Just catch this when we grip the gospel and the gospel grips us we will serve in sacrificial ways like Christ who gave His life for you and me. And that should be the thing that drives us. That truth, that reality, that identity that is ours in Christ ought to drive us to love others sacrificially. It's hard to know how to serve if you don't show up looking to serve others. We think, how do I serve? Where do I go? Like, show up looking to be selfless in serving others, asking others how you can help in the moment. You don't need more than a Christian to do that. You don't need to be a deacon to serve others, right? So we need help all over the places in all kinds of ways. I mean, let me just give you a couple ways. We always need help in children's ministry. Now, there's a reason that I always say that. It's because we always need help in children's ministry. And it's not just us. Every pastor I know, and I know lots of pastors, always need help in children's ministry. And so the people of God, if they're serious about seeing young children raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and helping other parents share the gospel with them, will sacrifice their time, maybe their clothes. Sometimes you get puke and stuff. But, but you get more points before God for that. But we need everyone pitching in to love our children unless you are unable. Now let me explain what I mean by able. Because I think able is kind of a flexible word that some people fit lots of stuff into that shouldn't be there. Able doesn't mean that you have kids all week and you don't want to have kids on Sunday. Because it messes up your time with Jesus. Able doesn't mean that you don't have kids, so it's not your problem. Able doesn't mean that, like, you know, I just really don't want to. I don't like it. I'm grumpy around kids. Well, you have a bigger problem. Don't be grumpy around kids. 
Speaking of that, we have SAF coming up. Allison is serving in that ministry and could use help, I'm sure. Help with kids, inviting kids, helping with preparing rooms. You know, she gave her week, a week of her off time, which a lot of us don't get a lot of off time, to serve children. What are you giving up to serve others? Let's joyfully serve together. We will mature before God and in our relationships one another as we do this. Now catch this. Relationships require presence and work and working together. And that can cement our lives together, especially when all done to the glory of Christ. Now, how do you serve? Well, let me just ask you some questions. Do you show up early when you serve? Because it's not just that you serve, but it's how you serve. Do you show up early? Or do you show up late and you're like, y'all should be super grateful that I just arrived? Or do you show up early and you're like, how can I help? Do you do it happily or griping about how tired you are and how inconvenient this is? And how do you respond to upset people? Do you join in or avoid them? Or do you turn them to their hope in Christ? Do you look to encourage others as you serve? Is serving about you or Christ in his body? Don't miss this. Good standing and great assurance are tied both to that you serve and how you serve. Philippians 2 says Jesus humbled himself, serving as a servant, but also, it didn't stop there, that God actually exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Now hear this, that's the promise and encouragement. When we humble ourselves as servants, God promises that just as he exalted Christ, we too will be exalted on the last day with him. And that's the model that gives all deacons confidence. This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.